This episode is brought to you by the Colorado Northwestern Community College. Join them for two weeks digging up dinosaur bones from the Jurassic period in Northwest Colorado this summer. For details, go to cncc.edu slash dinodig. As you write your life story, you're far from finished. Are you looking to close the book on your job? Maybe turn a page in your career. Be Continued at the Georgetown University School of Continuing Studies. Our professional master's degrees and certificates are designed to meet you where you are and take you where you want to go. At Georgetown SCS, the learning never stops, and neither do you. Write your next chapter. Be continued at scs.georgetown.edu slash podcast. Hello and welcome to I Know Dino. I'm Garrett. And I'm Sabrina. And today in our 329th episode, we have a bunch of news, including a new troodontid from Europe, Ooh. which is the first ever. So that's pretty exciting. Really? Yeah. Wow. We've known that troodontids were there for a while based on teeth, but we never had any of their body before. So this is the first. And we have dinosaur of the day, Ozraptor. Guess where that's from? Oz? Mm-hmm. Like land of? The Wizard of Oz? No, like Australia. Oh, well, it's spelled <laughs> O-Z, so I didn't make the connection with Australia. <laughs> <laughs> That's kind of confusing because there's Austroraptor, too. True. And then Ozraptor. <laughs> was, my next guess was going to be Kansas. Oh, no, no. It's because Aussies. <laughs> I never thought of that as spelled O-Z. That's interesting. Mm-hmm. But before we get into all that, we want to thank some of our patrons. And this week we have a new patron, Gordon Adon and Jackie Cephalosaurus. Yes, thank you. Also, thank you for the video. Yeah. And rounding out our shout outs, we have Blue Gollimer, Jackson Crawford, James Pascoe, Graham, Trent Carbajal, Risa, Stego Sophie, DC Cassandra, and Cameron. And I think we're now up to 190 patrons. We're so close. We might have announced that before because it ebbs and flows. Right. <laughs> but that means we're 10 away from our our next goal where we're going to do a live Q&A. Yep. We're pretty excited for it. So if you want to join, get us up to that 200 number, then go to our page, patreon.com slash inodino. Yeah. And you'll get lots of great stuff like bonus content. I don't think I ever mentioned this after we did our interview with Jiggy about Path of Titans, but we did have an extended version of the interview with Jiggy, which is like twice as long and it's got tons of cool stuff in there because we really talked a lot about different dinosaurs and how oh, yeah. they acted and what we can tell about them and then how that means, you know, you depict them in video games. Mm -hmm. So I definitely recommend checking that one out if you haven't already and you're a patron or joining to become a patron and then you can listen to it along with like 50 other. <laughs> we have a lot of extended content. Yeah. yeah. Extended interviews. And then it also if you join at the Triceratops level, you get ad free episodes at the Ankylosaurus level, you get shout outs. So there's there's all sorts of different rewards mm -hmm. depending on what you're interested in. And at every level, you can request a dinosaur to be covered. And at every level, you help us to pay for health insurance and other things now that Sabrina has quit her job <laughs> and is working on this full time, too. <laughs> yep. So we really appreciate all of you for helping to keep us going in more ways than just the podcast now. Mm -hmm. Jumping into the news, we're going to kick it off with our new dinosaur, as we usually do when there's a new dinosaur. 
this new paper describing a dinosaur was written by Albert Sales or Sayes and others and published in Scientific Reports. And like I hinted at, it's a new troodontid. It's from Spain. Mm. At the time, it was the Ibero-Armorican Island. Do you remember when I talked about the Ibero-Armorican Armorican Island? <laughs> kind of. That's such a mouthful. I always want to say American because it looks a lot like American. Right. But it's Armorican. Ar- arm- like, think like armor. Yeah. So the Armorican area is an area of France, which is now called the Peninsula Brittany. Mm-hmm. It's like that northwest part. It's a very famous part of France. Mm-hmm. Anyway, a long time ago, it was called Armorica. And so if you connect that part of France and then you go sort of down the west coast of France and then over the Pyrenees and then over into a bunch of northern Spain, that's sort of like less than sign <laughs> shape that you get out of that is the Ibero-Armorican Island. Hmm. And calling it just an island tells you a, pretty specifically about what time period it was from. That's like the latest Cretaceous had it as a single island. Other times during the Cretaceous, it was a series of islands because when sea level was higher, then it was more than one. Mm-hmm. And then before that, you know, it was connected to other parts of Europe. So it it ebbed and flowed and you get different amounts of islands (laughs) or island at the time. But that Spanish, French, and I guess Andorran area is fairly well known from the Cretaceous. And we know about a lot of herbivores from that area, including ankylosaurs, hadrosauroids, and sauropods. But we know a lot less about the carnivores that were around in the Cretaceous. Because we just find teeth. Exactly, yeah. So true to troodontid form, we've got lots of troodon teeth. That's what that's all troodon is, is teeth. I mean, the, the holotype of troodon is just teeth. Mm-hmm. And I, apparently it's kind of controversial whether they're troodontid teeth or if they might be dromaeosaurid teeth because we have found some dromaeosaurs from the area. And so presumably, you know, Maybe they could be a different type of dromaeosaur teeth. Troodontids and dromaeosaurs are pretty close on the dinosaur family tree. They did split off well before this point in the Cretaceous, but they do have a lot in common. So I guess that's why it's contentious. Hmm. Most of the theropod teeth they have look like they are from small dromaeosaurids, roughly 50 kilograms or 100 pounds or less. But again, some of them could be troodontids. And I want to point out part of the reason that we might not be finding that many dinosaur carnivorous remains is because the ecosystem might have been dominated from an apex predator standpoint by massive pterosaurs. (laughs) The sky predators. (laughs) Yeah, we've talked about that before. So there's Hatag Island, which was to the east. That's where Romania is now. Mm -hmm. And there's Hatag Opteryx, I think is the name of it. I I think of it like a flying giraffe with a five foot long head and beak (laughs) that could just like chomp down little dinosaurs. So scary. (laughs) Yeah, they're pretty terrifying. And they could take off and land very quickly. And And this is at the Cretaceous. Yes. So since Europe was covered in islands, you know. Get the smaller dinosaurs. uh, Yeah, there was a lot of island dwarfism with the dinosaurs, but there might have been island gigantism when it comes to the pterosaurs. Because they can island hop. (laughs) Yeah, exactly. (laughs) So they had like a larger range. I don't know. It's really interesting. That whole concept of an ecosystem with miniature herbivorous dinosaurs and massive 
carnivorous pterosaurs eating the dinosaurs Mm -hmm. is counter to everything that anyone who's watched Jurassic Park would imagine. Well, especially (laughs) when it's peak dinosaur time. Yeah, exactly. The the end of the Cretaceous, there were so many diverse dinosaurs. And in the U.S., we had T-Rex and Mm -hmm. like other massive carnivores. But in Europe, the carnivores were very small, except for maybe the flying ones. So (laughs) that might have been going on. That's still, it's really hard to prove. And pterosaur bones are incredibly hard to find because they're so thin, just like bird bones. You need good preservation. And then by nature of the fact that they're flying around, they might not end up getting preserved in places where you see fossils. But that's my favorite hypothesis about why there aren't very many large carnivorous dinosaurs. It is fun to think about. And then they just picked him up and teeth fell out or something. Oh, you mean the... the... Why we have so many teeth. (laughs) Yeah. Well, I mean, they also shed teeth. Yeah, I know. But yeah, you're right. Like if they were eating all of the dinosaurs and if when they died before they fossilized, a pterosaur swooped in and ate it, Mm -hmm. then you wouldn't have a lot of remains for sure. And things that fly can be better scavengers too, because they can just sort of soar around like a vulture. And if they had a good sense of smell, find out where to go. Mm Mm-hmm. This is something I will look more into when we diverge from dinosaurs at some point in the distant future. But (laughs) yeah. So this whole time period I'm talking about is about 66 million years ago. And according to the authors, they say, quote, within 200,000 years of the mass extinction, end quote. That's pretty close. So it's very much the latest Cretaceous in the truest sense of latest Cretaceous. And it's, it's so close to the mass extinction that... Sometimes people talk about we might be able to look at this Ibero-Armorican fauna and maybe even see if we can find that iridium layer. We might be able to piece together just how fast dinosaurs went extinct after the Chicxulub impact or hit. Like we don't know, maybe dinosaurs survived for a a few thousand, tens of thousands, maybe even a couple hundred thousand years before Mm -hmm. fully going extinct. Or the pterosaurs picked them off. (laughs) Yeah, that's true. Yeah, presumably it it would make sense if the pterosaurs lasted longer than Mm -hmm. some of the other carnivores. So on to the name of this dinosaur. Its name is Tamaro insperitus, and Tamaro should be pronounced with a rolling R, I think, but I cannot do it. I'm not even going to attempt to do it. Actually, when I saw that it had a rolling R, I spent about a half hour with a YouTube tutorial trying to roll my R's again. I've never been able to do it. Still completely failed. I've never been able to do it either. It's very difficult. Apparently, like a third of people in Spain can't roll their R's either, which makes me feel a little bit better about myself. Oh, interesting. So anyway, Tamaro is a really cool name for a genus. They say it's, quote, a Catalan word referring to a small and elusive, fantastic creature from the regional folklore, end quote. Nice. Yeah, I have, I have a lot to say about that. But before I get into that, the species name Insperitus is, quote, from the Latin word for unexpected in reference to the unexpected discovery of the specimen, end quote. They didn't expect to find it, and then it was elusive and small. Yes. And I think that's a very similar definition to, I think, inexpectus we saw recently or something to that effect. It's a, a kind of common species name in dinosaurs. It's like, it's a surprise that it's here. It's like, yeah, that's... That's what fossils are. They're surprising. <laughs> you don't expect to find a bone that's made out of rock. You expect to just find regular rock most of the time. But I, I presume that they're talking about the fact that it's a troodontid is the unexpected thing. But they just said unexpected discovery. So who knows? It could also be that it was found in the same spot as a pararabdodon, which is a hadrosauroid. And when I say the same spot, they described it as just a few decimeters away 
decimeters is a unit that no one should use. It means 10 centimeters. <laughs> so in other words, it was like within a foot, basically, of the specimen. Mm. Yeah, I, I could see uses for it. For decimeters, yeah. it's needlessly complicated. <laughs> <laughs> it's like kind of like yards. It's, I mean, a decimeter is like a third of a foot or a quarter yeah. of a foot. So the opposite of yards. Well, you just have a meter as a yard. Yeah. I, I could see cases for it. <laughs> I suppose. I like the um, engineering nomenclature where you only go in units of three. So you have like meter and then you go up to kilometer. And if you're doing less than a meter, you go down to millimeter. But I guess centimeter is like more on human scale than millimeter. So mm -hmm. that's why. And then decimeter. I, yeah, I suppose. Maybe I shouldn't be so picky. So tomorrow, now I want to tell you a little bit about what tomorrow is. And I, it's like tomorrow. <laughs> there, I, I attempted to roll my R. So I was about to say, it's always a day away. Yes, because when I say it, it, it sounds like I'm saying tomorrow. But mm -hmm. it's tomorrow. Anyway, it's apparently an Italian slang for, it's like an insult for someone with bad taste. Oh. One on Urban Dictionary, they describe it as like Jersey Shore. In Italy, everyone called them tomorrows. <laughs> Which means if you Google like tomorrow and you look at like Google images, mm -hmm. you just get a bunch of pictures of like people on beaches with like big gaudy necklaces, and, like bad swimsuits and stuff. Interesting. Yeah. So Googling it is difficult. But I did find eventually some of the Catalan origins of it. So the official Andorra tourism page describes tomorrows as mischievous creatures, which are difficult to see because they move very fast. And Andorra if you're not familiar, is in between Spain and France. It's in the Pyrenees. And they actually created a scavenger hunt with seven wooden Tamaro sculptures for kids to find. And it's one of those where like you collect the stamps and mm. then you go back and you get like some reward, like maybe a little notebook or a pin or something. Oh, that's fun. Yeah. Kind of like the dinosaur tour of Montana. Exactly. That's, that was the first thing I thought of too. The scavenger hunt or these wooden Tamaro sculptures look to me mostly like cartoon anthropomorphic bunnies, but sometimes they also have little small horns. So they're cute. Kind of. They have like weird faces. They're sort of like the monsters in Where the Wild Things Are. Mm. Kind of like that sort of, like the main one at least, where it's like big and fuzzy. It's got the big head and kind of a weird face. Mm -hmm. But it's, yeah, it is cute-ish <laughs> as far as monsters go. And those are basically the only pictures I could find associated with tomorrow partly because of this whole Italian slang issue that you run into. And the main other source I could find talking about the tomorrow is the Catalan Wikipedia, which has no sources. So I'm really trusting that whoever wrote this isn't just making a fool out of me. But they describe it as being in a lot of legends in the Pyrenees, including Andorra, which aligns with the Andorran tourism board, at least. But they say apparently today is mostly used as a trick on visitors. So what they do is when somebody comes to town, they tell the visitor that they're hunting the tomorrow in a group at night. And they spend a while like preparing traps. You know, you, you just make up some kind of ritual and you're just tricking this poor sap into believing that there's this <laughs> creature out there. Usually you'd say it's like really valuable or there's some especially good reason to capture it. And... It usually involves like wandering around. If you're adults, it's probably like a drinking party as well. And then 
somehow or another, they tell the visitor that either they're going to wait to spring a trap. So you give like the visitor a bag and you're like, okay, wait here. And mm-hmm. then you just leave them there for a few hours. Oh my gosh. Sort of like playing hide and seek and never actually seeking the person. Similar sort of prank. Mm-hmm. Or other times, one of the descriptions was you get them to walk under a trap where you like dump a bucket of water on them. One example was <laughs> you get them to hide in a lock, like a lock by a, a river, mm-hmm. and then you like open it up on them to like soak them in water. Oh, which, that sounds intense. It does sound intense. But in any event, it's just like some way to like trick people into, you know, doing something silly where they are believing that this creature exists when it doesn't really. And apparently in the Catalan version of the Pixar movie Up, the old man tells the boy to go find the tomorrow when he's telling him to get rid of him. So he's like, rather than telling him, I don't remember what he says in the English version, but when they want, he wanders off and he tells him to go away. Yeah. That's like the, the Catalan version of that is like, go find the tomorrow. It's like their, their shorthand of it, I guess. That's funny. There is an American version of this called the Snipe Hunt. Have oh. you ever heard of that? No. You, you went to camps as a kid. I never heard of the Snipe Hunt. It's something I once I read that I was like, oh, yeah, that is a thing. So it's it's basically the exact same thing in America, but instead they're hunting for like a squirrel like creature. And it's the same thing. You're like, go out in the woods and find this thing. And, you know, you stand here with this bag and I'll scare it out. And then you grab it and you like just make them sit there for like an hour. <laughs> so apparently this is something there's something in the ether that makes people think of this sort of prank. It's a category, I think they call them like wilderness practical jokes. <laughs> They're all over the world. There's different versions of it. There's one in France called Hunting the Dayu, or it's spelled D-A-H-U. And that creature, D-A-H-U, is spelled different in all sorts of different parts of Europe. And it's usually depicted as like a mountain goat. Sometimes it's got like shorter legs on one side than the other, but it's the same sort of thing. One of the stories I read was people will say since it has shorter legs on one side it can only walk like clockwise or counterclockwise around the mountain (laughs) and what you do is like one person's going to startle it and then the other person waits downhill with a bag and is going to catch it and then obviously the person waiting with the bag again is Mm, they're just the one waiting (laughs) exactly so funny how often this thing comes up but apparently some consider this dayu to be another name for the tomorrow because you know france is on the border with Andorra and all that. So it might be the same sort of basis of the legend, which is probably why some of those tomorrows in Andorra have horns because it, mm-hmm. it's it might... goat horns. Exactly. So if you thought you were trying to catch anything that looks like a mountain goat, though, like really you, you think you could catch them? They're so agile and deft at what they do <laughs> moving these, around. These ones have the like shorter legs and if you startle them they apparently fall down the hill. Mm, but, <laughs> that's the see. story. It's obvious to most people that it's ridiculous and I think these legends aren't really perpetrated that much on poor visitors anymore except for with kids basically because yeah, oh, yeah. kids are yeah. a little more credulous. Sure. I remember being told stories in camp as a kid from the counselors but I don't remember Snipe Hunt. <laughs> they never made you wait in the woods with a bag? No. <laughs> I think it. They, one of the places said that the snipe hunt is largely done with Boy Scouts. So it's sort of like a hazing ritual oh, okay. that's done. So even if you did figure out that it wasn't real, you might have to just sort of go through the motions. And one thing said with this Dayu, it was like in the mid-1800s when a lot of rich visitors were coming to the town. And it actually sounded kind of like the Italian slang for tomorrow, where it's like sort of 
people with too much money and like are just like being obnoxious. So the way they would torment them is like, we're going to go hunt this animal, like come with us. And then, <laughs> yeah, but eventually people got wise to it. So it became more of like a children's game. Mm. It's a really interesting story. And I wonder if the name has anything to do with that because that's, that is basically the modern use of the word tomorrow is this snipe type creature. Yeah. Really interesting. Frankly, probably more interesting than the actual find, which is why I spent so much time on it. So <gasps> the dinosaur person says the dinosaur finds not as interesting. Well, so the dinosaur find is only a single partial foot bone. That's more than a tooth. It is much more than a tooth. And I'm glad that they waited until they at least found a foot bone to name it unlike Trodon. But they found metatarsal two, which is the second foot bone. So it's the bone in the foot, not the toe in between the toe and the ankle. Mm -hmm. In other words, it's mostly complete. It's basically missing three little slices where I presume it was broken and the very top. So elusive. <laughs> yes. I was kind of wondering that. Like, it's elusive and mysterious. Are they are they putting those the species and genus name together? And that's why they picked tomorrow to go with it. But fortunately, the foot bones and theropods are still pretty big. So it's they're a lot bigger than our foot bones are relative to our body size. They're about half the length of the lower leg bones in most theropods. And again, that gives the backwards knee look in dinosaurs and birds because that's actually the ankle with a really long foot below it and then they're on their tiptoes. So in this case, the foot bone is about 14 centimeters or five and a half inches long. And that's roughly the same size as the same bone in Gobi Venator. So obviously we presume they might be about the same size, mm -hmm. which would make it very roughly one to two meters or three to six feet long and shorter than our waist is where I'd put it at. So maybe like a turkey with a tail in that sort of ballpark. And big claws probably. Probably, yes. We don't know because we didn't find them. Right. This also makes it pretty big for a contemporary Eurasian troodontid because some of the ones we found are really small, like small bird, like pigeon size mm -hmm. kind of thing. The bone only has one unique feature, <laughs> which is not great when you're describing a new species, but is a small hole on the side of the plantar ridge of the foot bone. Basically, it's, that's all it is. Just a, there's a small hole there. And it has some characteristics too of troodontids that aren't present in dromaeosaurids. So we think it's probably a troodontid, but they did say like, well, it could be a, a dromaeosaur that's just lacking this one feature that the troodontids have in common, because when we're just working with this one foot bone, there's still a lot in common between those similar branches. They did histology on the bone and they found that it was still actively growing. It only had one lag, but some of the bone is remodeled, which is a trait you usually see in older individuals. So it might have been approaching full size, which is really weird for one lag. It's sort of like in some ways it looks like a young, still actively growing dinosaur. And on the other ways, it looks like it's nearly fully grown. <laughs> it's like it's sort of a weird amalgamation. I guess because it's kind of a small dinosaur. That's why. Yeah. And they, they just think that it grew really quickly, basically, to get near its adult size. They describe it as subadult, and maybe it's about 75% of its maximum size, very roughly, based on a, a simple sort of rudimentary chart they put together of like an estimation of growth. And again, they show it as a very fast grower initially, 
with that one lag and then already having some remodeled bone. It would have been similar to the juvenile troodontid Maylong, which was discovered a while back and also known to be a very fast grower and, you know, possibly a close relative being a troodontid. Do you think dinosaurs that grew fast were clumsy in the beginning? When you think of humans and we have our growth spurts and it takes us a little while to get used to our new long limbs. I don't know. I mean, I feel like everything other than humans is so much better at being out in nature and like capable of walking. Oh, yeah. They're much more <laughs> precocial. Yeah, exactly. So I don't know. I mean, troodontids were relatively intelligent since they were hunting, presumably. Maybe they had, you know, some training going on with the parents. Mm. So maybe it's possible that they it's were a little more, clumsy and had parents looking after them. More important to their survival, though, to not be clumsy. Yeah, especially since it's kind of small. It's got to at least be not clumsy enough that if something is chasing it, trying to eat it, it doesn't fall down and get eaten. Mm -hmm. Unless it could climb a tree, and the troodontids in some cases could, so it's possible. And modern birds, too. A lot of them grow really fast, and I guess they, they can be a little bit... <laughs> goofy. Well, when they're first learning to fly, for sure. Yeah, or even like penguins when they're learning to walk. But they all have parental care, mm. too, so like it doesn't matter so much. But then even ostriches are near their full height after six months, so they grow real fast, even compared to tomorrow and May. Mm. So I don't think the, the growth isn't really super fast compared to all dinosaurs, because we have modern dinosaurs, which grow significantly faster. But it is fast for the time period. I don't know if I've ever seen a six-month-old ostrich. Yeah, I was I was trying to find like details about what a six-month-old ostrich looked like, and I couldn't easily find it. But if they're about full height, I assume that means they looked a lot like all the pictures of adult ostriches mm -hmm. that I've seen. Although apparently adult ostriches aren't mature, as they describe until three or four years. I assume that has to do with like sexual maturity though, like when they're ready to mate and not just gross body size, which is something we can never tell by looking at skeletons. Gross body size is in full body size? Yeah. I, I was thinking like weight, I guess. Okay. Not like, ew, gross, an ostrich. <laughs> no. <laughs> so with, with that said, it looks like tomorrow still would have taken about four to eight years to develop an EFS and be done growing and all that because there's sort of that long tail with dinosaur growth where we think, you know, they reach 95, even if this, if this one reached 95% of its growth in two years, it still would have like been creeping along with growth for quite a bit longer. And then just because paleontologists can never resist, they put it in a phylogenetic tree to see what its closest relatives were. But with one bone, it's probably not very informative. <laughs> it's probably a waste of time. But it might be useful in like some of the other troodontids that they put in there because it's sort of a reanalysis of mm -hmm. the family. So that that's helpful. Always good to add more data. Yes. And in this case, Tamaro came out as a Jinfung Opterygine troodontid, which are a group of troodontids from Asia. You can probably tell by that name, which at the very least makes it the first Jinfung Opterygine troodontid found in Europe. But like I said earlier, could be considered the first ever troodontid in Europe, period, unless you're including some smaller finds, which are controversial like teeth or even more partial <laughs> finds than this one is. So 
Although I could see in the future someone saying this one's not definitive and we found a better version and that one's the real first unambiguous troodontid. That would mm. not be surprising. Maybe one day there'll be a first nearly complete one. That would be nice. It'd be nice if we just had like a full leg or something. More than just like a limb. I'd be happy with one limb <laughs> <laughs> rather than just one bone. The highlight, though, of this paper and the value of it is probably that we have a better idea about how troodontids got into Europe and specifically this group, which seems to have arrived from Asia. So we're guessing that, you know, that means that it wasn't in Europe on the Ibero-Armorican island that long before Tamaro evolved because in the Maastrichtian, when it was like the very latest Cretaceous, the sea levels had dropped back down a little bit. So presumably it would have been easier for troodontids to make it over to this former island, maybe still partial island. But it's possible that they could have gotten there before sea levels rose a lot, like in the 100 million year old ballpark, and just sort of lived separately from the Asian relatives for that long period of time. And it just has these things in common with the Jinfeng Opterygines over in Mongolia and China. So we're, we just don't know because we have one foot bone and we have some teeth that might be from troodontids. <laughs> so, hashtag Nemore fossils. Yeah, seriously. It, in this case, more so than most. And it'll be hard to prove that they got there in the Maastrichtian too because you could always argue that we're just missing the fossils that have been there all along. So it, it's going to take a while till that's settled, and we really know what's going on with these troodontids in Europe. It's a pretty fun puzzle, though. This episode is brought to you by the Colorado Northwestern Community College, where you can become a part of the scientific process. As a participant, you can go on a real-life dinosaur dig, and you'll be helping to advance science and our understanding of the ancient world. What's really cool is that the fossilized bones that are being excavated, they're public, and they're going to be displayed and preserved for future generations to study and admire. Yeah, we've mentioned how that's a really important part of the scientific process, not just getting them out and describing them once, but keeping them and preserving them so that future questions and future scientists can take a look at those bones to answer new questions and validate results. And the site is special and also near and dear to me because it's in the Morrison Formation, known for the sauropods, mm -hmm. of course, of the Jurassic time. And it represents one of the best bone beds ever found in the saltwash member. Yeah, the current interpretation is that the site was the result of a brachiosaurus sort of jamming up a river and then other carcasses piling up behind it. <laughs> oh, no. And that's how we got a bunch of different types of dinosaurs all fossilizing together. So, oh, no, but also, yay. <laughs> Good for us as scientists. <laughs> mm -hmm. And dinosaur enthusiasts. Yes. So there are two scheduled digs if you want to get involved with getting these bones out of the ground. You can go from July 6th to July 20th or from July 22nd to August 5th. Head over to cncc.edu slash dinodig. You'll get all of the details. Just make sure that you register online by May 31st. And again, that is cncc.edu slash dinodig, D-I-N-O-D-I-G. Across America, BP supports more than 275,000 jobs to keep energy flowing. Jobs like updating turbines at one of our Indiana wind farms and producing more oil and gas with fewer operational emissions in the Gulf of Mexico. It's and, not or. 
See what doing both means for energy nationwide at bp.com slash investing in America. In other news, there was a another new paper. There's always a new paper. This one's by Joshua Malone and others, and it's about dinosaur migration and how certain gastrolists that were found in Wyoming in the U.S. came to be there because of the migration. It was published in Terra Nova. So what happened is they found some unusual rocks in Wyoming while they're doing field work in the Bighorn Basin. And by unusual, it's because they're very polished and they looked really different from other rocks in the area. Specifically, they found five red quartzite gastrolis. In the picture, these rocks look more brownish to me than other pictures I've seen of red quartzites. It's also next to a camera lens for scale. It looks like it's about twice as long as that camera lens. Interesting. That is, that's a large gastrolith. Yeah, it is. And so the color, the texture, and the composition of these gastroliths match those that are found about 600-ish miles or 1,000-ish kilometers to the east, which is where the migration piece comes in. So they think that it was probably sauropods, that swallowed these gastroliths in what's now Wisconsin. And then they yeah. walked somewhere along a, a stream. I think it was like a slow-moving stream and basically walked from maybe Wisconsin-ish area to Wyoming area. Of course, neither of those existed when they were migrating. And then the author said that these gastroliths were, quote, deposited out within the Morrison deposition. They probably pooped them out. That's really interesting. Yeah, I see they, they mentioned that back then the water flowed from east to west, at least in this one river, from Wisconsin to Wyoming. Yep. So we already know that dinosaurs migrated, but this is a new way to track their migration through their gastroliths. Yeah, that's that's really interesting. I also, it seems... Like another way that rocks get polished is by being in rivers generally, mm -hmm. which might be why they think it was walking along a river because maybe this was an already a little bit polished before it swallowed it. Could be. But yeah, I, I could imagine just some event happening that would wash a stone from Wisconsin to Wyoming, whether it's as a gastrolith or not. You know, it could be a gastrolith that had no longer been within the sauropod mm -hmm. <laughs> got you know washed in that direction but presumably there's some detail to it where we can see some acid etching or something where it makes it look like it was a recent gastrolith hopefully and then that it was deposited right where the the animal ended up before it died yeah I, they mentioned they looked at the composition so and hopefully that rock is super unique to wisconsin <laughs> so that you know it it didn't just find some rare outcrop of it in Wyoming and eat that instead. It's very interesting though, because we've been talking, I think more articles lately have implied or inferred that dinosaurs didn't migrate very much and they tended to stay somewhere year round. Like there were several studies from Northern Alaska mm -hmm. where we found juveniles of an age where basically the result was, well, they couldn't have laid this juvenile here and then had the juvenile trek the 300 miles or a thousand miles back south. So it must have stayed there year round. And this is basically saying, well, at least 
some large herbivore, because it's a big rock, mm-hmm. <laughs> might have migrated a, a decent way. It's also fun that it started in Wisconsin and moved west, just like me. <laughs> it didn't make it as far west as I did, though. Yep. <laughs> or maybe it might have gone to the limit of how far it could make it to, actually. There might have been some obstacle that stopped it from getting past Wyoming, like a mountain. Yeah, or Wyoming just had the best vegetation. Yeah, why keep going? They made it to the Great Valley? Is mm-hmm. that what you're saying? Yeah. Wisconsin was like a, a barren wasteland, and they needed to make it At out. least for some of the year. <laughs> they might have gone back. Oh, man. <laughs> Walking 600 miles one way, that would be rough. It's a cool study, though. I, I like the idea of being able to use gastroliths mm-hmm. to look at migrations. It makes sense because there are a lot of unique rocks all over the world where we only find them in very specific places. So... I could definitely see that being used, that it, it ate something specific. As a complete aside, I've read recently about how lead shot, like for hunting birds, was banned. And it was banned in 1991 by Bush Sr. in the U.S. at least, mm-hmm. because they found that waterfowl were eating this lead shot as a gastrolith, thinking like, oh, that that looks like the perfect size and shape and everything as a gastrolith. And then it would poison the bird and the birds were dying, these these waterfowl were dying. So they banned lead shot and had to switch to steel. And that was a whole, it's difficult because like steel is harder on guns and it, it caused this whole sort of uproar within the hunting community. But now people are are generally happy with it. And in California, there was a, another piece to that, which was like the California condor. Mm-hmm. And, you know, it's basically a vulture, so it eats dead animals. Sometimes the dead animals are ones that were shot and then like escaped a little bit. Mm-hmm. And, you know, so the hunter didn't actually retrieve the thing that they shot, but the California condor would. And sometimes they would eat some of the lead that was in the animal. Oh, and then also get poisoned. Yeah. So a lot of that was part of the decline of the California condor. So when they banned, they also banned using lead, I think, basically for any kind of hunting in California. And the California condor population like bounced back pretty quickly afterwards and the, the only reason they found that was because there were people trying to figure out how to help the California condor. And they were noticing that some of them were dying from lead poisoning. Interesting. And then they figured out like, oh, wait, yeah, I guess that makes sense. And it, it's really interesting. Lead is really nasty. Yeah. It turns out. And birds are not necessarily smart enough to pick, you know, the ideal gastrolith. They'll just pick whatever's the right size and shape mm-hmm. and go for it. So I could definitely see a sauropod just eating whatever's around, <laughs> like not being picky, looking for the same kind of stone. And you could get some local differences. Hopefully they didn't stumble into any lead deposits because <laughs> it would not last long after that. <laughs> this is true. <laughs> well, maybe longer than a bird because they're so much bigger. Yeah, but the the toxicity of lead is really high. Mm. They describe it as like a fingernail worth is enough to cause like brain development problems in a child, hmm. which is like lead paint and yeah, just the dust, a, a light dust can be really harmful. So be careful with lead. That's the, the public service announcement for this episode. <laughs> <laughs> if you're going fishing and you're using lead, which maybe you shouldn't, but if you are, don't bite it onto the fishing line because just biting it to crush it can get enough into your system to cause problems. We cover all kinds of things on this show. Yeah. I go down some rabbit holes. <laughs> Erictodromius burrows. So in other news, going back to Europe, the Hungarian Natural History Museum recently announced that there's an international team led by Gabor Botfalvai 
who has rediscovered a dinosaur site that was first found between 1909 and 1915. And that was found by Adokar Kadik. And hopefully I'm not doing too terribly on my pronunciation of these names. So this site has a lot of dinosaur and reptile fossils, and that includes fossils from Magyarasaurus. After World War I, the area where these fossils were found was ceded to Romania, and then information about the exact location of the site was lost. Oh, no. Yeah, it tends to happen after world wars. Yeah, I suppose. That's not the worst thing that can be lost. Yeah. But the uh, original map was recently found, so the team was able to refine the site. Oh, wow. Yeah. So they found some like hundred over a hundred year old map. Yes, and already they've found more than a hundred fossils. Ooh, and that includes fragments from crocodiles and turtles and the backbone of a sauropod. They say, "Hey, mm. fave." Yeah, it's interesting that it was there with turtles. There always seem to be links <laughs> in one way or of another. Of course, of course. <laughs> Didn't even think about that. But here you go. <laughs> At least it wasn't a footprint of a sauropod. Next we don't to a know what the turtles were doing. <laughs> Why is there only a backbone of a sauropod? Oh, it ate the rest of it. <laughs> <laughs> it was a turtle and crocodile feast on a sauropod. <laughs> one of nature's greatest feuds, sauropods and turtles. <laughs> it's a one-sided feud. No, it's not. Okay. <laughs> There's no way for us to know. Anyway, moving on to another part of the world. In China, paleontologists recently found the world's smallest stegosaur footprint. Well, that's interesting. Yeah, that was found in the Xinjiang Uyghur Autonomous Region. So the footprint probably came from a juvenile stegosaur that lived in the early Cretaceous. It's about 2.2 inches, 5.7 centimeters long, and that is small compared to average footprint lengths of 12 to 20 inches or 30 to 50 centimeters. I wonder how they decided that it was definitely a stegosaur and not some other kind of thyreophoran. Well, apparently a lot of stegosaur tracks have been found in the area already. Mm. Although I'm not sure how they determined maybe there was some fossils nearby and they could put it together. Yeah, if it's from the Jurassic, then it's probably more likely to be a stegosaur. This than... is the Cretaceous. Oh, interesting. Yeah. Hmm. <laughs> as, a, as an ankylosaur fan, I'm yeah. wondering about the, these other thyreophorans that it may have been, namely ankylosaur. So, uh, there's no paper on this yet. This is a news item. Okay. So it's not like official research, peer-reviewed, all that yet. But finding these tracks could help scientists better understand stegosaur behavior, especially while they're growing up. So you can kind of see, all right, what were they doing what were these small tracks doing compared to the larger tracks? Mm -hmm. And, you know, maybe it's possible they hid in nests or safe areas until they're big enough to be out in the open. Yeah. Yeah, we've definitely seen that depicted in a lot of paleo art mm -hmm. and walking with dinosaurs. But it's such a hard thing to see in a fossil record. It would be really cool, though, if one day we found, like, evidence of a community of just juveniles mm -hmm. living in some isolated area. And then, you know, presumably coming out and joining adults somewhere else. Once it's safe. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> Once they're big enough to, for it to be safe, they got their full thagomizer grown <laughs> and the plates and all that good stuff. Maybe that explains why in Land Before Time, it was always the, the juvenile dinosaurs hanging out together. <laughs> sure. <laughs> <laughs> that included Spike. Yeah, it did. <laughs> so next, Tristan Otto. 
It's that T-Rex skeleton we've talked about before. It's staying at the Natural History Museum of Copenhagen until the end of this year. Because originally, Tristan was supposed to have already gone back to Berlin. But the stay's been extended. Because nobody was able to see it for the last year, yes. presumably. Yeah, the King of Dinosaurs exhibit in Copenhagen was closed because of COVID. The skeleton, you know, it's on loan from the Natural History Museum in Berlin. But it's there until, I think it's till the end of this year. And then it, the T-Rex is going back to Berlin as part of their newly planned science campus. And that's being built over the next 10 years. So it sounds like that's going to be pretty epic. Wow. Takes even longer to build stuff in Germany than it does in California. 10 years. That's a, that's a long build schedule. That is. But maybe there's a lot of stuff planned. I hope so, yeah. I hope it's like Jurassica. Oh, yeah, that'd be cool. <laughs> Probably not. <laughs> that's a lofty hope. But yeah, was it like a real animatronic sort of recreation of a full ecosystem? Crystal Palace dinosaurs, but with animatronics? <laughs> that would be so cool. That would be cool. Maybe one day somewhere. I'm hoping one day somewhere there's like a real Jurassic Park with Evo Devoed birds back into dinosaurs. Mm. That's what I want to see. But I know there are ethical questions about this. Yes. Including many that they've brought up in Jurassic Park. Yeah. I don't care. I wanted the dinosaur. <laughs> <laughs> People will remember this if something goes horribly awry. It'll be fine. I think if you... I've been thinking a lot about this. Mm -hmm. I think if you recreate... You Evo Devo, say like an Archaeopteryx or some small feathered, potentially flying dinosaur and it escapes, you could have a problem where it goes and it becomes an invasive species. But if, you, if you're like trying to make a large like megafauna, mm -hmm. humans have never had trouble getting rid of megafauna. Mm. It's, it would be fine. It might wreak some havoc, like in the long term, we'd be fine, but. Who knows about the short term? Well, that happens all the time. It's like lions escape zoos and they do a little bit of damage and then, mm. yeah. It'd be worth it to have a dinosaur or like a, a dinosaur-ish bird mm. that I could look at. I'm thinking about Jurassic World Dominion and the scenes that we've already seen in trailers and the short movies and stuff in... The humans are having a hard time living alongside the dinosaurs, the yeah. big dinosaurs. I, I find it a little bit weird. It's like there's one with like a stegosaur. It's like it's not hard to track down a stegosaurus <laughs> <laughs> and either capture it or kill it or whatever you need to do with it. But they're not going to be just like wandering around. And you're like, oh, where'd the stegosaurus come from? It's pretty easy to spot, especially considering they were at the very least mesotherms. So you can see them with thermal imaging. Mm. It'd be pretty easy to find them with just a, a few helicopters. Unless they act like tomorrow's. <laughs> and they they're so elusive and they can... <laughs> Have magical hiding abilities. Yeah, yeah. Go into the mountains. That should be the new, rather than a snipe hunt, it should be like a dinosaur hunt. <laughs> Tell the kids like, oh, this dinosaur, didn't you hear? They they cloned a dinosaur and it escaped into the wild. <laughs> We're going to capture it. <laughs> I might actually get tricked by that if I was a kid. Yeah. I would, I'd think it was worth it. I'd be like, what are the odds that they're lying to me? Well, even if it's a 1% chance, I'm going to do it because I want to see this dinosaur. Unless you get real smart about it and you bring them back a bird. I suppose. Yeah, snipe is a type of bird. It's funny because the, the Wikipedia page about snipe hunts, it several times clarifies, yes, snipes are a type of bird, but that's not what this is about. It's about this make-believe squirrel-like creature called the snipe, <laughs> not the snipe that is a real animal again. <laughs> 
All right. Well, moving on to our last bit of news. The Children's Museum of Indianapolis has a Sue Meets Bucky exhibit from now until July 25th. And if you go there, you can study Sue's broken bones, Sue the T-Rex, and then see evidence of Sue's pathologies, you know, arthritis, infection, parasites. So many things happen to Sue. Yeah. (laughs) And this exhibit's part of their general admission. Cool. Sue meets Bucky. I assume Bucky is a tyrannosaur as well. Bucky's a teenage T-Rex. Uh-huh. They can hang out together. Sue is doing a lot of things. This must be a replica of Sue, right? Yes. So it's a replica of Sue meets Bucky. That doesn't roll off the tongue as well. You still see the broken bones and the pathologies. CarMax is putting peace of mind back in car shopping by putting you in the driver's seat to find a ride that's right for you. Because at CarMax, we believe you shouldn't just settle for a car. You should love your car. That's why every car we sell is CarMax certified quality so you can be sure with upfront pricing that's the same for every customer. So don't settle. Find love at first drive and start shopping now at CarMax.com. CarMax, the way car buying should be. Ready to elevate your home? Picture this. Central heating, a cozy fireplace, or your dream walk-in closet. Build a backyard oasis, go green with solar panels, or start a business. It's all possible with Figure's Home Equity line of credit. Unlock up to $400,000. Apply online in five minutes. Funding in as little as five days. Head to figure.com and transform your home. Figure Lending LLC, DBA Figure, Equal Opportunity Lender, NMLS 1717824. Terms and conditions apply. Visit figure.com for more information. For licensing information, go to www.nmlsconsumeraccess.org. And now on to our dinosaur of the day, Oz Rafter, which is a request from LREX via our Patreon and Discord. So thanks. Oz Raptor was an abelosauroid theropod that lived in the Middle Jurassic in what is now Australia, as we briefly mentioned at the beginning of the show. It was found in Kolalura sandstone. It's not a dromaeosaurid, even though it's got raptor in the name. Meh. That's all I have to say about that. <laughs> yes. It probably had a typical theropod body, you know, walked on two legs and it was carnivorous. The holotype is UWA82469 and consists of the lower end of a left tibia, the shin bone. This fossil is about 3 inches or 8 centimeters long and 1.6 inches or 4 centimeters wide at the lower end. And it's estimated that the full shin bone was about 7 to 8 inches or 17 to 20 centimeters long. So that's even less bone than tomorrow, the new troodontid. Yes. That's a good point. Not a lot to go on there. Not a lot to go on, and I don't think I mind as much as you when it's based on just a single bone. It just means that it's likely to get axed later. Someone's going to say there's nothing unique about this dinosaur, and then Mm. it's going to be a gnomon dubium. That's true. It depends what else is found in Australia. So Oz Raptor is estimated to be about 6.6 feet or 2 meters long. And the body length was estimated by comparing similar bones in other theropods like Allosaurus. The fossil was found in 1967 by four 12-year-old Scotch college schoolboys. <laughs> wow. Stephen Hindcliffe, Peter Peebles, Robert Coldwell, and Trevor Robinson. And they found it near the coastal city, Geraldton. They were there to collect fossils. It was found at the Bringo Railway cutting site. So the boys showed the fossil to Rex Prider, a professor at the University of Western Australia, 
And Rex Prider sent a cast, which was still embedded in the Matrix, to researchers at the Natural History Museum in London. And Alan Cherig there thought that it might be a turtle, <laughs> but it, you know, wasn't really prepared yet. The fossil had been worn away at parts, too. Then in 1998, John Long and Ralph Molnar named and described the fossil as Ozrafter. So Long had the fossil prepared when he became curator of vertebrate paleontology at the Western Australian Museum. He was appointed there in 1989, and then he started a review of Mesozoic vertebrates of Western Australia, and that meant studying all the material in the museum's collections. And after it was prepared, they said that this was the shin bone of a theropod. And apparently the fossil was encased in rock and long pried it apart with a hammer and a chisel. The type and only species is Ozraptor sobotai. And the genus name means Australian thief, because Oz is a colloquial term for Australia. And from the paper, it says, quote, one may therefore metaphorically think of Ozraptor as the lizard of Oz. (laughs) That is great. (laughs) Yeah. The species name is in honor of the fictional character Sobotai, who's this fast-running thief and archer from the movie Conan the Barbarian. And the species name is because Long said that the rectangular depression and the morphology of the shin bone probably means it was an agile dinosaur. And apparently he was a Conan the Barbarian fan. Yeah, that too. (laughs) That he had that name (laughs) chewed up and ready to go. (laughs) So the original paper in 1998 spent a lot of time covering what made the fossil unique enough to be its own genus, even though it's based on a single incomplete bone. So there you go, Garrett. They were aware. The distinct features included this depression where the ankle bone, the astragalus, is attached. And it's almost square in shape. Usually it's triangular. And the medial malleolus was weakly developed. That's this bony bump on the inner side of the ankle. So the 1998 paper said that the shape of theropod ankle bones can be distinct enough to show different genera. Till we find a whole group that has that same type of (laughs) joint, and then it's just going to be like, what could be any of these five? They also said, Garrett, that (laughs) this is the first known Australia Jurassic theropod, and it's unlikely to be from something already known. The closest known theropod at the time was Cryolophosaurus, and that had been found in Antarctica. But they were connected, so... But still far away. Yeah. The paper also said that the theropod Kakuru was named based on part of a right tibia with a unique ankle facet. So it's not unprecedented, although I know you think it shouldn't happen at all. (laughs) It's also not unprecedented that dinosaurs become gnomum dubium from being named from two small finds. Yes, so... (laughs) Anyway, they saw that the shape could be used to recognize major groups of theropods, so in the case of Kakuro, it indicates a yet unknown group of theropods, and the same goes for Osraptor. And they did a lot of comparisons to other theropods with the ankle bone shapes and the tibial morphology. For example, theropods with more of a triangular shape include Coelophysis and Synraptor, and they found Osraptor to be unique compared to Jurassic theropods, though they did also find some similarities with some Cretaceous theropods. Ozraptor was the first dinosaur formally named from Western Australia, apart from Trax, and the, it was the first Jurassic theropod bone from Australia. Dinosaur tracks had been found in Queensland previously, including at least one track from a small theropod that was thought to be around the same size as Ozraptor. 
And at the time that Ozraptor was named, pretty much all dinosaur bones found in Australia had been from the Cretaceous. Plus, there's this one partial skeleton of the sauropod Rotosaurus that was found in southern Queensland from the Jurassic. And one probable sauropod caudal vertebra that was found near Gelton that Long had reported in 1982. But for the most part, mostly Cretaceous. Yeah, it's definitely what I think about. It's like the smaller nithopods, the big titanosaurs out in the outback and all that kind of stuff. It's Cretaceous. Mm-hmm. So Osraptor was found at the same site as the as that sauropod caudal vertebra. They also found fossilized wood, bivalves, and plesiosaur bones. And originally, Osraptor was classified as Theropoda incertacetus. Yeah, that's that was a good call. <laughs> <laughs> then in 2004, Oliver Raoult found Osraptor to be the oldest known abelosauroid. That's based on a review of postcranial material of a small theropod from Tanzania, as well as other theropods, including abelosauroids and ceratosaurs. At the very least, it is handy to have a name for it, because if it's the only thing we have from that continent that's like it, I think it's kind of handy to have a name so you can say like, oh, Osraptor, rather than having to memorize the specimen number and think of it as that one theropod bone that we have in Australia. Mm -hmm. It might make it a little bit easier in, in the literature, but... Yeah, I would not be surprised if this changed names in the future. Yeah, maybe. But for now, it's known as an abelosauroid, and that's because abelosaur fossils from Tanzania were found to have similar characteristics to Osraptor, like that depressed feature. Similar, but not the same. Yeah, we didn't hear at all about Osraptor when we were in Australia, but I think it's because... We weren't in Western Australia. Exactly. And there are much more complete finds in quite a few localities in the eastern half of Australia. No one says Eastern Australia, but because <laughs> it's not a state, but in Queensland and Victoria, especially, and New South Wales to a lesser extent. And our fun fact of the day is sort of a correction of something we said in an earlier episode, and that is that the sloths of the Cretaceous should be considered therizinosaurs, or maybe I should say the therizinosaur should be considered the sloth of the Cretaceous. Mm. Like how we we talk about how the hadrosaurs were sort of like the horses, maybe the cows of the Cretaceous, Mm -hmm. but I think they should be the horses. And then like some of those low browsing sauropods should be considered the cows of the Cretaceous. (laughs) We've got like the rhinos of the Cretaceous or like triceratops. There's like a whole series you can come up with, but definitely therizinosaurs should be the sloths of the Cretaceous. Why is that? So I should say before answering your question, <laughs> I'm thinking of ground sloths and not three-toed sloths that currently live. Because if you think of sloths of the Cretaceous, you might be imagining like a giant three-toed sloth. And it's not a very good analogy because the modern sloths use their claws to hang from trees. And that is clearly not what Therizinosaurus were doing with their claws. But ground sloths, do you remember ground sloths? A little bit. They, the first time, well, we saw them at the American Museum of Natural History, and we've seen them at some other natural history museums. They look sort of like a giant bear as far as comparisons to modern animals go. So they have the same kind of like really bulky body, big legs, big arms, big claws. And just like modern bears, I think they were omnivorous, but they might have been purely herbivorous. And they had really big claws. For example, there's megalonyx, which means large claw and then more famous is megatherium which means great beast Hmm. that one shows up a lot because i think megatherium was the biggest of the ground sloths or at least 
it was well known <laughs> for a while and it's really big it's in north america you can see that one at quite a few museums who've seen megatherium a few times so yeah it's really bulky herbivore it has very big claws not nearly as big as therizinosaurus but claws you would not want to be near probably bigger than most claws if not all claws on animals around today unfortunately all of the ground sloths went extinct with most of the megafauna around 11,000 years ago probably from human hunting there's a site that they found where it's clear that there was like a feast of megafauna i think it was around 12,000 years ago or something somewhere in the u.s i believe hmm. so yeah we probably hunted them to extinction but just like therizinosaurs they're big they're probably slow moving because they're more or less quadrupedal they were probably herbivorous they had big claws so there's a lot in common with the therizinosaurs for sure i think earlier we said that we considered dinochirus to be the sloth of the cretaceous i think that's the one we were picking for that it makes sense because it's so weird it is very weird but maybe it's more like the platypus of the cretaceous or something. <laughs> <laughs> we need to come up with like a whole series of analogies for all these different dinosaur groups so also as a quick aside there's a debate about whether or not megatherium had hair on it or if it was too large and would overheat which reminded me a lot of the t-rex debate and mm -hmm. some of the other like did x dinosaur have feathers debate mm -hmm. it's really weird because it's only eleven thousand years old like that they were still alive and we don't know if they had hair it seems like we should be able to figure this out but i guess that's what happens when you hunt them to extinction yeah all the soft tissue got digested <laughs> by people yeah i don't think they ate the hair though oh no maybe if there was hair if there was hair they probably used it for other things yeah could be you use the hide for something i suppose mm -hmm. but if there wasn't hair probably just ate the skin maybe i mean depends how they prepared it i guess yeah but you can find depictions of it both with and without hair but for comparison i feel like every therizinosaur depiction i see has feathers on it again i never see featherless therizinosaur drawings true even though some of them were really large and as far as i can tell we only have evidence of feather impressions on the therizinosaur bapiaosaurus and those are down like fuzzy feathers and bapiaosaurus is considered small it's only about 2.2 meters or seven feet long and the upper estimate of its weight is 90 kilograms or 200 pounds mm. So if we're comparing that to mammals, like lots, pretty much all mammals that are 200 pounds have fur, at least on the ones that are on land. So it's interesting. Why, there's a debate? Yeah. The climate was probably different too. Yeah. And I mean, we've talked a little bit, I guess, about how feathers are a little bit more versatile. They don't necessarily increase your body temperature as much as hair because you can sort of manipulate them and shed, you know, shed them or have different types of feathers for different situations. And some actually some of the therizinosaur drawings now that i'm thinking about it just had some display feathers on like the arms and didn't really have a full downy coat so maybe that's why but just for the record therizinosaurus does not mean sloth anything it means scythe reptile because its massive claws resemble a scythe <laughs> which is a pretty perfect name for it this therizinosaur from north america falcarius means sickle cutter same sort of like based on the claws they sound so menacing yes but there is the therizinosaur which was named in 2001 nothronychus and it means slothful claw interesting 
And I think that's because by this point in time, paleontologists had been calling therocinosaurs basically the sloths of the Cretaceous or the sloth dinosaurs. In fact, the title of the chapter on therocinosaurs in Holtz's Dinosaur Encyclopedia is the sloth dinosaurs. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> and it doesn't have Nothronicus or Nothronicus in it because it was published, you know, near the time that it was named, but I'm sure that, you know, that was a, a common discussion that someone was waiting to find a therizinosaurus so that they could name it after a sloth. Yeah. I really like that. So since there's literally a therizinosaur, Nothronicus, that means slothful claw, I don't think any other dinosaur could be considered the sloths of the Cretaceous. Well, what a fun fact. Well, that wraps up this episode of I Know Dino. Thanks for listening. Don't forget to follow us or subscribe to us in your favorite podcast app so you don't miss out on any new episodes. And join our growing community, patreon.com slash I Know Dino. Thanks again, and until next time. Good day.